Many, many of you might have heard the news, uh, maybe maybe on um, on the news or on social media about God's presence being poured out over our country. Is anybody hearing about this? And Asbury, Kentucky, as the Asbury University, there's a uh, a university of young people that had just stuck around after a service that was like this. Somebody came and spoke, and they did worship, and they just continued the worship, and the presence of God just started to move in this university. And pretty soon, thousands of people started coming from all over the country to see uh, what God was doing in this place. People were getting delivered from the demonic. They were being healed, and God's presence is being poured out. And there's little uh, other little things that are sprouting up over our nation where God is just sovereignly moving, and his presence is being poured out. And there's a word uh, that is used to describe all of this, and I wanted to just uh, just clarify this word for some of us who might just not understand what we're talking about, but it's the word revival. There's a word that we use in the Pentecostal stream. Some people use the word renewal or an awakening, uh, but the word revival, uh, this is a definition that I got from gotquestions.org, and I, I felt like this, this describes what we're experiencing. The word revival, by the way, is not found in the Bible per se, but the effects, what we're describing here when we talk about revival, we see these types of things happening all over Scripture, and I'm going to talk about one in a minute. But gotquestions.org, it says revival refers to a spiritual reawakening from a state of dormancy or stagnation in the life of a believer. It encompasses the resurfacing of a love for God, an appreciation of God's holiness, a passion for his word and his church, a convicting awareness of personal and corporate sin, a spirit of humility, and a desire for repentance and growth in righteousness. Come on, how many of you want that kind of thing to take place in our community and our and our little town? And we think, oh, you know, I, I think we can forget that God is this is the God of small places. And he wants to do big things in small places. He wants to start right here in our hearts. And so uh, this morning, we're going to go through Jonah chapter 2 with, uh, with that in the back of our minds, with that in our lens. Uh, one instance that we see of revival happening in the Bible, it happens in the book of Jonah. In the very next chapter, Jonah chapter 3, the whole city of Nineveh repents and turns to the Lord. And revival, it's when many people are experiencing a personal spiritual awakening. It's this sovereign move of God that's an answer to people who cry out in a way that's very similar to what we see Jonah doing in this chapter, in Jonah chapter 2. And he prays, Jonah prays from the belly of a fish, this passionate and repentant prayer. He, he prays in darkness and God responds with his salvation. And so in the next chapter, Nineveh cries out to God in a similar fashion that Jonah cries out to God, and an entire city turns to God. And so I want to keep the idea of God responding to the cries of his people. I want to keep the idea of revival in the back of our minds as we read this chapter. And I want you to look at Jonah's prayer from the belly of a fish and ask yourself if this is the kind of prayer that God is looking for today. Can we read this together? Jonah chapter 1. We're going to start at verse 17, the last verse in chapter 1, and then move to chapter 2. It says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I call out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answers me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cry. And you hear my voice, for you cast me, listen to that language, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounds me. All your waves and your billows pass over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Nevertheless, I continue to gaze toward your holy temple. The waters close in over me to take my life. The abyss surrounds me. Weeds are wrapped about my head. To the roots of the mountains I sink. The netherworld its bars are closed upon me forever, and yet you lift me up from the pit alive, O Lord my God. Even when my life ebbs away, I remember the Lord. My prayer comes to you, to the temple of your holiness. Those clinging to empty idols forfeit the grace that is theirs. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will fulfill. Salvation comes only from the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, 
and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. It's a good visual. Good visual. The word vomit in church, it's always good. You know, as I mentioned, uh, if, as I mentioned in, uh, in our first week, if you believe that God can raise Jesus from the dead and that he can part the Red Sea, then it's not difficult to believe that God can cause a great creature to swallow one of his prophets and to carry him through the ocean. And, um, you know, uh, we believe that this story is historical. It's fact. It's not fiction. You know, ever since I was a kid, my favorite animal has always been the orca, the killer whale. And I think probably it was the name killer whale that attracted me as a kid. And I remember watching um, this BBC documentary of, of orcas called Wolves of the Sea. And it was narrated by none other than David Attenborough. Uh, that voice just gets you every time. If you watch Planet Earth or those other deep-sea documentaries, that, that, that narration voice is perfect. But uh, I've always loved orcas because they are, they're intelligent. They're related to the, the dolphin, but they're also very fierce creatures. And um, they're, they, they work in packs. They work in families. And in this documentary, you would just show a whale. Uh, they'd, they'd show a, a bunch of uh, sea lions out on the beach. And these whales would swim with full speed. And they would beach themselves onto the beach. And they'd grab an, a seal. And they would drag it back into the water. And I remember thinking, that is terrifying. That is so scary. But what a gift it is to be able to see these documentaries. And to be able to peer underwater at these beautiful and immense creatures that God has placed in the ocean. Now, what I'm about to share with you has nothing to do with Jonah's prayer, but I think it's interesting to speculate about what swallowed Jonah because it speaks to me about the greatness of God and the greatness of his creation, that he can cause anything to happen, that he is in control of all things. And so many people have wondered, was it a, was it a fish or was it a whale or what was it that swallowed Jonah? Let me get a little nerdy on you. Uh, the Hebrew word in verse 17 of chapter 1, the Hebrew word for fish is, uh, the, is the word dog. And it literally just is the Hebrew word for fish. And it's used uh, to describe this thing that swallows Jonah. But this word for fish also includes everything that lives under the sea. Here's how we know. Because in Genesis 1.26... It, it uses the same word, dog. It says that God gave mankind dominion over the birds of the air and of the fish, dog, of the sea. But that is not the word that was used to describe the creation of the fish in verse 21 of Genesis 1. Here's what it says in verse 21 of Genesis 1. It says, God created, some of your translations says, God created the fish of the sea and every, every living creature that moves. But the word is tanin and it means sea monster. It means sea monster or whale or a deep or things of the deep, things found, great things found in the depths of the ocean. And so we cannot be certain what swallowed Jonah, but we have to consider the lens of the ancient Hebrew, what they would have thought. I mentioned this last week. What would an ancient Hebrew who didn't have a BBC documentary, didn't have uh, planet Earth, they couldn't peer under the water, they didn't have underwater cameras, they didn't know what, what was lying under the water. So imagine an ancient Hebrew on the sea, the very few people that went onto the sea at the time, because Israel was not a seafaring nation, uh, but the very few Israelites that went onto the sea would have seen the back of a humpback whale or the back of a sperm whale and thought, what is that? What does the rest of that thing look like? It must be a sea monster. Something huge lives under the water. So if you're a little skeptical of the reality of Jonah's story, maybe you're here and you think you've grown up hearing this story. Maybe you grew up in church and still are a little skeptical. Or maybe you're new to church and think, man, this story is a great fiction story, but it's just it just can't be real. Let me share with you some interesting records that I've found. And again, I'm going to get a little nerdy because I think you're going to really appreciate this. This, this blew my mind. Uh, the Princeton Theological Review published an article in 1927 that was titled The Sign of the Prophet Jonah and Its Modern Confirmations. And the article claims 
uh, that it's perfectly possible for a man to survive two to three days inside the belly of a, of a sperm whale. And it, it would have to be a sperm whale because humpback whales, uh, they can't swallow uh, anything large. They, they, they eat krill. But a sperm whale, uh, whalers back in the day used to find whole squids inside of a sperm whale, squids that were larger than a man. There would be air enough to breathe because the whale needs air to float. And it would be 104 to 108 degrees inside the belly of a whale. It would be hot. It would be sweltering. So there's a story, this article. This article includes a story uh, of a whaling ship called the Star of the East that set sail in February of 1891. And this whaling ship spotted a sperm whale off the coast of the Falkland Islands. So they sent two rowboats out to the whale to go ahead and attach harpoons to the whale. I know everybody say, oh, that's sad. Anyway, uh, they sent these two rowboats out there, and the first boat was successful. They attached uh, their harpoons. The second boat was coming around to attach its harpoons to the whale, uh, but and each boat had two men in it. But the boat, the second boat, was capsized in the process, and one of the sailors on the boat ended up drowning, but the second sailor, whose name was James Bartley, he disappeared, and he couldn't be found. Well, in time, the, the men killed the whale, and they were drawing it to the, the side of the ship to, to hold it fast, to remove the blubber and all the stuff they want to remove from the whale. And they waited until the next day when they removed the stomach of the sperm whale, and they brought it on deck. And when they opened up the stomach, they found the missing sailor inside the stomach of the whale. He was unconscious, but he was alive. And they used... They used seawater to revive him, and in a, a certain amount of time, he got back up and he started resuming his duties on this whaling ship. And when I heard this story, I thought, this is just so interesting that we do have a more modern story of somebody surviving in the stomach of a whale for a period of time. There's other compelling links to Jonah that have been discovered by archaeologists. First, there was a seal that was found uh, to belong to Amasis II of Egypt. And uh, he lived around 570 B.C. And this seal of this Egyptian, uh, uh, of this Egyptian man shows a man emerging from the mouth of a sea monster. And it has been noted that the depiction of this man on this seal is Jonah. So even the Egyptians had knowledge of this person, Jonah, emerging from the mouth of a sea monster, coming out of the ocean. There were nations all over the area who had heard the tale of the man who came out of the mouth of a sea monster, and it spread across the land. The second, the, the second interesting bit of information uh, is the name of a mound in the upper Tigris Valley under which the, the remains of Nineveh were discovered. So the site of Nineveh had been lost for centuries, had been lost for a, a very long time. But the mound that they discovered the remains of Nineveh under had been called for centuries Nebi Yunus, which means the prophet Jonah. So for centuries, even after Nineveh had disappeared, this mound was still called the prophet, Nona, the prophet Jonah. And underneath it, they found the remains of Nineveh. And some historians believe that the association between Jonah and ancient Nineveh may have been preserved due to the fact that Nineveh worshipped the fish god Dagon. So Nineveh worshipped a fish god there. And it had been speculated that perhaps Nineveh's response to Jonah's preaching, when Jonah came, he preached a five-word. We're going to talk about this next Sunday. Jonah preaches a five-word sermon to the city of Nineveh. And in this five-word sermon, Nineveh, the entire city, turns everything upside down, and they cover themselves with dust, they rip their clothing, and they repent, and they turn to God. And many people speculate that perhaps uh, there may have been witnesses from Nineveh that saw Jonah emerging from the mouth of a sea monster. Now, if a city worships the, a fish god, and they see a man coming out of the mouth of a giant sea creature... They might have thought this man is a divine messenger from God. We have to listen to him. This is all speculation, but it's interesting to note to listen to these different historians 
It's easy to see how a city that worshipped a fish god may have received this divine messenger and would have preserved the tale long afterwards for nations all around to know about. And despite how fascinating these discoveries are, it's far more valuable this morning to consider not what happened inside the belly of the sea monster, but to continue, but to consider what happened inside of this prophet. What happened to Jonah as he waited for God's salvation? What was going on inside of him? We just read his prayer. And when you read his prayer, and when you read about Jonah crying out to God in darkness, and God responding in such a, a magnificent way, there's, I believe that there's three truths that Jonah recognized in this prayer. We can see that Jonah recognized these three things. And these three things save us all. They apply to every single one of us. The first thing I think that Jonah recognizes as he's in the belly of the fish is that humans are morally terminal. We are terminal. We are morally terminal. We are born into a broken world from broken parents. And the result of our sin is eternal death. This is a quote from Timothy Keller. He says this, We are taught that our problem, this is regarding our culture today here in America, we are taught that our problem is a lack of self-esteem, that we live with too much shame and self-incrimination. In addition, we are told all moral standards are socially constructive and relative, so no one has the right to make you feel guilty. You must determine right or wrong for yourself. In a society dominated by such beliefs, the Bible's persistent message that we are guilty sinners comes across as oppressive, if not evil and dangerous. And these modern cultural themes make the offer of grace unnecessary, even an insult. See, we live in a culture that believes nobody should make you ever feel bad about what you do. That your truth is relative and what you do, nobody else has business telling you what you should do. You are a good person. Deep down, you are a good person. But the controversy here is that the Bible tells us the opposite. That apart from Jesus, we are corrupt. We are evil. We are terminal. And Jesus comes and offers the solution. To offer us, to give us, he gives us a new spirit, a new identity, one that is not corrupt, one that is not immoral, one that desires to follow him and be like him. And Jonah recognized that he was receiving a just punishment for his sin. He says this in verse 3. Notice he says, you hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the sea. See, Jonah is fully aware that uh, he's fully aware of God's divine justice, and he knows that he deserved it. He knows how corrupt he is in this moment. He knows that he is receiving a just punishment. So the first thing that Jonah, the first conclusion he comes to, the first truth he recognizes is that I am terminal. I'm morally terminal. I'm corrupt on the inside. I need help. The second realization that Jonah comes to, that we all need to come to, is we do not have the cure. We don't have the solution. We cannot tighten our laces and strap on our boots and fix ourselves. But even after knowing the truth of our human condition, our culture tells us, you can fix this. You can, you can do something about this. With hard work and maybe devotion to some religious plan or some service you know, in your community, you can become a better person. You can tip the cosmic scales in your favor so that at the end of your life, when you stand before God, he'll say, oh, good, you did more good things than you did bad things. You can come in. That's not how it works. We do not have the cure. We can't fix ourselves. And in verse 6, Jonah describes sinking down into what he calls the netherworld or Sheol. And in the scheme of Hebrew cosmology, they really had this, uh, they had, um, they believed that deep under the heart of the earth was Sheol. And those, that's where the things of the deep resided. 
and then you had the mountain of God in the middle or, or the plain where humanity lives on, but then you had the heavens up above, and so and the throne room of God was seated up above. And so as Jonah is describing sinking down to the very depths of the earth, this is the place that is the farthest from God. He understands that he is sinking to a place that is the farthest from God's presence, the farthest from his throne. He uses images of bars closing in around him, and he knows that there's nothing he can do in his own power to save him. He's captive. He's a prisoner. He's awaiting salvation. He knows that he's terminal. He's corrupt, and he knows that there's nothing that he can do to fix it. He is at the mercy of, a, of God. He is at the mercy of a good God. And the third thing that Jonah realizes as he's in the belly of the fish is that God's grace is so costly. It is so costly. There's two times in Jonah's prayer that he mentions looking towards God's holy temple. Where he describes looking up at the holy temple. And some scholars believe that he's specifically referring to something in the temple known as the mercy seat. That this is a, uh, this is a, a use of language that is describing the mercy seat that's in the temple. And, it, and the mercy seat uh, was a slab of gold that was on top of the Ark of the Covenant. So the Ark of the Covenant housed the Ten Commandments and a couple other things. And God's presence in the Old Testament physically resided. It resided inside of the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant was a slab of gold with these angelic creatures on top. And this was referred to as the mercy seat. And once per year, the high priest on the Day of Atonement would enter the Holy of Holies, the place where the Ark of the Covenant was, and he would sprinkle the blood of an atoning sacrifice on top of the mercy seat. And it would atone for the sins of the nation of Israel. And centuries later, Jesus would shed his own blood as the atoning sacrifice to the world. He is referred to as the high priest. In the book of Hebrews, it describes Jesus as the high priest who enters beyond the veil, who goes into the holy of holies, and he, he sacrifices himself, and he sprinkles his own blood on top of the mercy seat. And this is what Jonah is gazing towards. He recognizes that salvation is costly, that it requires sacrifice. And in this moment of helplessness, Jonah's prayer reveals how aware he is of his corruption, his inability to save himself, and that his salvation can only come from an act of God. And this is the revelation that all of Nineveh has in the following chapter. And as they repent, and as they go through these motions that Jonah is doing in this chapter, as the city repents and they, 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 they throw dirt on their head and they, they tear their clothing and they turn away from their sin, as they do that, they experience true revival that begins in the heart of people who cry out, God, I need you because I'm lost without you. I can't fix myself. I'm corrupt. I need you to save me. What Jonah needs is a fresh start. Amen? He needs a clean slate. He is stuck. He's unable to free himself. Unable to save himself. He, he needs a fresh start. He needs a rebirth of sorts, wouldn't you say? And that is exactly the image that the Hebrew writers subtly convey in this text. See, the image of Jonah passing through the sea is the image of both a grave and a womb. It's a grave and a womb. In verse, I, this is so interesting. I learned this this last week, and it, it almost just made me, uh, I'm just in awe of the writers of Scripture. But in verse 17 of chapter 1, the writer of Jonah describes the fish using the masculine form of the word fish. And in the very next verse, chapter 2, verse 1, it is the feminine form of the word fish. It's as if the writer is suddenly depicting the fish as a female 
to suggest that Jonah is not just in the belly of a fish, but he's in the womb of the fish. And when he spat onto the shore, it's almost as if Jonah is being reborn as he's coming out of the womb. Is this sounding familiar to any gospel story that you know of? Come on. Jonah is being reborn in this moment. And it's also this fish going through the sea is also this depiction of a grave. See, in the New Testament, Jesus relates himself to water. When he visits the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4, he describes himself as the living water, the the water that I give, you'll never go thirsty. The Holy Spirit and and Jesus, they describe themselves as this living water. But in the Old Testament, water is used to depict chaos and death. And we have example after example in the Old Testament. Let me give you just a few. In Genesis chapter 1, in the very, bin- very beginning, the very first page of Scripture, it says that the earth was formless and void. The word there that is used is chaos. The earth was chaos. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. It was hovering over the chaotic waters and then god began to organize and he began to bring life to the earth and he began to separate the water from the land and that's the first example that we see and then in genesis 6 noah he passes through the water on an ark he is saved from the destruction from the from the 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 death that this flood brings and he passes through the water in an ark in exodus Moses floats on the Nile when he was a child. His mother creates a wicker basket and sticks him as a baby inside this wicker basket. And he is saved. If you read the story, uh, how does the Egyptians, how do they decide to kill all of the newborn infants? They cast them into the Nile. They drown them in the water. But Moses floats on the Nile. He's saved from the destruction of water by floating on this wicker basket. By the way, there's only... Two places in scripture where the word, the Hebrew word for ark is used, it's in Genesis chapter 6. And the only other place where it is used is in Exodus when it describes the wicker basket that Moses was laid in. He was placed in a little ark. And he was saved as he travels down the Nile. The other examples that we have in Exodus is Israel passing through the Red Sea. They are saved from the destruction of the waters and they walk on dry land as they cross through the Red Sea. In Joshua 3, Israel passes through the Jordan River. The the same thing happens with the Jordan River. The waters part on both sides and Israel makes its way through the water to salvation on the other side. And in the New Testament, we have this imagery of water baptism, don't we? And it symbolizes when when you are water baptized... It symbolizes as you go into the water, you are dying to your old self, your old nature, that corrupt nature that needs saving. That part of you is dead. And as you come out of the water, you receive a new spirit. You receive new life. It's this image, once again, of God's people passing through the water and receiving salvation on the other side. And in the book of Jonah... This is exactly what is happening again. Jonah is passing through the waters of death, and he is being saved on the other side. We have to respond appropriately to the truth that Jonah comes to. We have to respond appropriately to what Jonah recognizes in his prayer. And I believe that as we respond appropriately, our prayers should include some things that Jonah's prayer included. And I want to talk about four things that we recognize within Jonah's prayer. And I believe that every single follower of Jesus needs to include all four of these things in their prayers today. This is what our prayers should, should, should look like, what they should include. The, number, the first thing is this, is honesty. When we pray, we should include honesty. We should be honest. We are often dishonest in our prayers. What do I mean? We have a tendency to ignore something in our life that God has clearly opposed. Or we ask God for something we know he's already rejected. 
or we pretend that a difficulty in our life is not the result of my mistakes, but I've been unfairly given an obstacle to overcome. It'll, it'll get better if I just keep going. But no, it, it just doesn't have anything to do with my mistakes or the decisions that I'm making. And so we come to God just kind of ignoring all of that. And we're dishonest in our, in our prayers at times. You know, one of my children, um, I won't say who. I'm going to try to protect my kids. But one of my, one of my kids uh, often asks for dessert before dinner. And... Uh, this one particular incident, I, I told this child, no. I said, no, you can't have dessert before dinner. you got to wait till after dinner before I give you dessert. And they followed me around the house asking again and again, expecting a different answer from me. And uh, Christina was in the other room, and she was calling after this child and asking where this our, our kid was. And they yelled out. They responded. They said, I'm waiting for Dad to answer my question. And I replied, no, you're not waiting for an answer. You don't like the answer that I gave you. And now you're waiting to see if I'll change my mind. Sometimes we think if we wait longer or ask differently, then we'll eventually get what we want despite living in our disobedience. If I wait longer, if I ask differently, if I do something, if I... If I, if I do a little ritual dance before I pray, then things will be different. And we think to ourselves, well, you know, I suppose these difficult things just happen to some of us. Or things will just eventually get better. If I keep going, if I keep doing the same things, like, yeah, I know I, I, I'm going to ignore the conviction of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to ignore what I hear God telling me to do. And I'm going to act like if I just keep going, it will eventually go away. Has anybody ever, am I the only one who's ever prayed like this before? Okay, I, I better be relating to some of you or else you should be up here and I'll be, I'll preach to you, okay? Come on. We are dishonest at times in our prayers. And Jonah did not do this in his prayer. He broke down and he was honest about his failure. He was honest that, in, that his circumstances were the result of his own sin. And that God is the one who's placed him in the fish. Can I tell you, I've been here before. I have been here before. I have suffered physically. I've suffered emotionally. I've suffered relationally as a result of the sin that I have committed. And when I was finally honest, and when I faced my own sin, I experienced two emotions. Maybe some of you have been here as well. And if you're waiting to do this, I'm going to tell you there's two emotions that you will experience as you are honest and you confess your sin to others. The first emotion that you will experience is sheer terror. You'll think, what is going to happen next? I've just admitted my fault, and now I'm at the mercy of God, and I'm at the mercy of others. And there's this feeling of terror that comes over you, like, I don't know what's going to happen next. I don't know... I don't know what my consequence is going to be. And there's a little bit of terror. But can I tell you, there's, there's another emotion that accompanies this kind of honesty and confession. When you're in that place of honesty, there's a sense of God's presence that even in judgment is a comfort. You experience God's comfort. Can I tell you, church, that it is better to fall into the hands of God, even in judgment, than to be apart from him. It is better to fall into the hands of God, even in the midst of judgment, than to be apart from him. Uh, David is case in point. In 2 Samuel 24, David sins and he disobeys God. And as a result of disobeying God, and by the way, what he did that was wrong was God asked him not to count the number of Israelites there were. But David got paranoid and felt like he needed to to see if their army would measure up, that, that they would stack up. He wanted to measure Israel's greatness. And so he counts Israel, that, and God told him not to. And as a result, the prophet Gad delivered a message from God to David with three choices of God's judgment. This is a super interesting story. God gave David three choices. He says, I'm going to bring judgment on you, but I'm going to let you pick which one you want. Okay. He says, here are your options. I, I feel like I'm getting flashbacks to, like, being a parent, you know. You're giving your kids, okay, do you want a, do you want a timeout? Do you want a spanking? Do you want 
a week without the TV, you know. But here's the three choices that David has. You can choose between seven years of famine, three months of defeat before your enemies, or three days of pestilence. And David chose the pestilence because he said this in 2414. He said, let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But do not let me fall into human hands. David understood that even in judgment, it is better to be with God. And when you confess, and when you are honest about your sin, you experience a comfort knowing that God is merciful and he's going to take care of me. And just like Jonah, we must learn to cry out to God with honesty. The second thing that Jonah prays with is repentance. He is truly repentant. This is the next step. This is taking honesty to the next level. We can't be honest about ourselves and continue doing what we are doing. We have to turn away from whatever it is. Jonah says in verse 8, he says this, Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. Some tra- another translation says, Those who cling to idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Jonah is turning away from the desires that Tarshish once offered to him. He's turning away from the idols he's established in life. And by the way, I think one of Jonah's idols was the fact that he was a Jew. He thought that he was saved no matter what. He was a descendant of Abraham. He had God's favor. He had God's salvation already. There was nothing he had to do, and he made that an idol in his life. I think we tend to do that sometimes in our culture. I'm a Christian. I, I belong to a Christian nation. I had Christian parents. I grew up in the church. And that can oftentimes become an idol in our lives, thinking that that is what saves us. Let me ask you this morning, what idols may you have? Is money an idol in your life? Is lust an idol? Is recognition from other people? An idol in your life? Is it your personal reputation? Do you care a lot about your personal reputation so much so that it keeps you from doing what God wants you to do? Is it good works? That can sometimes become an idol in our lives, thinking that that if I do enough, I can save myself or I can become enough. Is your personal comfort an idol in your life? That I I I want to do what makes me, I don't want to step out of my comfort zone. I, I, I want to I be okay. I want to be safe. Oftentimes, if that is keeping you from doing what God is asking you to do, you have to know that Jesus did not come to make you comfortable. He came to take you out of your comfort zone. If God is truly going to transform a place, the people must be willing to repent from worthless idols. And Jonah experiences, he he confesses with honesty and with repentance. The third thing that Jonah prays with is thanksgiving. Here's an interesting thing. Jonah was not thankful that God had delivered him from the fish because God had not yet delivered him, right? Jonah was not thankful that God was going to deliver him from the fish because he didn't know what God was planning to do. So what was Jonah thankful for? What was he offering to God as he's praying? What what is he thankful for? Jonah was thankful that God had caused him to turn from rebellion and call on the name of the Lord again. He was thankful for salvation. He was thankful for the abiding grace of God. Despite where he was at, he was thankful for. For God's mercy, that that God had caused his calloused heart, his rebellious heart, to turn away from his disobedience and to look to God once again. Did you know that is something that only God can do? As you think about those family members who are far from God, as you think about those co-workers and those friends that are far from God, can I tell you that it is an act of God that is going to soften their hearts? There is nothing that you can say. You can't argue your way. You can't argue somebody's way into the family of God. But it is a move of God when he comes and he softens somebody's hearts. And oftentimes, church, you know this, oftentimes it looks like a storm, doesn't it? Oftentimes it looks like somebody hitting the bottom of the barrel. 
when they have nowhere else to turn to. They keep running and running and running until finally they say, I don't know what else to do. I'm lost. And those are the moments where God in his mercy comes and he picks them back up. And he shows them his love and his compassion, his salvation for their life. I remember when I confessed my sin to people that I had wronged. I remember when I did this and I was thankful that I no longer carried that burden with me. I knew at the time, I knew at the moment that that moving forward was going to be difficult. I knew that I'd have to rebuild trust. But I was so grateful for the feeling of freedom that overcame me. I was so thankful that I didn't live with a cloud over my head, that I didn't live thinking that God was angry and upset at me. By the way, that's what shame does to your life. God is forever calling you to him. God is forever standing there with open arms, with his love and his grace over you. But what shame does is we say, no, I'm not worthy of that love. I'm not worthy of that forgiveness. you, You don't know what I've done. The sin that I've committed is worse. And we think that we are unworthy and we keep ourselves in isolation. We keep ourselves away from God. And that moment that we're honest and we repent a weight drops off of us and suddenly the scales are removed from our eyes and we realize the truth that no, God did not run away from me. God did not step away because of my sin. I stepped away from God. I moved away from him because I was living in sin. And Jonah is experiencing this in the belly of the fish. He's thankful that God has has softened his callous heart and has turned him back to God. Thanksgiving to God is an act of worship. Our prayers should always include the worship of thanksgiving, and we need to always remember how good he is, even in the midst of judgment or trial. The last thing that Jonah includes in his prayer to God is sacrifice and vows. In the previous chapter, the sailors were the ones making vows to the Lord. After, the, after God calms the ocean, their fear, they, they fear God exceedingly, and they make vows to the Lord. They give their lives to God. And Jonah at the time didn't yet understand how in need of a Savior he was. But now, in the belly of a fish, Jonah is not a pious Jew who believes that his ethnicity is going to save him. He's right there with the sailors. He realizes that he is a man in need of saving Notice what it says in verse 9. Jonah says this. I shall pay that which I have vowed. What has he vowed? What does he have to pay with? As a prophet of the Lord, he has vowed his life to God. He's thinking that he is about to pay with his life. I'm in the belly of the fish. I'm going to die here. God, what I've promised to you. I'm about to pay. Think of what Romans 12:1 says. It says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Notice Paul's precursor. In view of God's mercy. We don't offer our lives as sacrifices to a cold and callous God who requires worship from people. That is not who we give our lives to. But we offer our lives to a merciful God who desires the best for us. It is in view of God's mercy that we are able to give him everything we have because we know That his plans for us are better than our plans for ourselves. That he loves us far more than anyone else could ever love us. That he wants to take me places that I could not even dream of. I couldn't even fathom. And so we offer our lives to him in view of his mercy. I'm going to ask Mary to come up. We're going to close in a minute. Would you stand with me? All across... All across our nation, we are experiencing the presence and the power of God being poured out on on lives. And I don't want to miss out 
on any time when God pours out his presence in my lifetime. We're seeing people cry out to God in genuine repentance and forsaking their idols so they can grab a hold of what God is doing. And as I was preparing for this message yesterday, I came in last night and the Lord directed me to 2 Chronicles 7, 14, where God makes a promise to Solomon during the dedication of the temple. Solomon finishes building the temple for the Lord and they are consecrating, they're they're dedicating the temple of the Lord. And this is what God says to Solomon, to the people of Israel over the temple. He says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. I have chosen and consecrated this temple so that my name may be there how long? Forever. And then he says, my eyes and my heart will always be there. God says about this temple, this physical building, he says, whenever a prayer is offered in this place, my ears will be attentive. When you pray in this tent, in this temple, my ears will be attentive to what you're saying. He's saying, when you step into this temple, you can be confident that my eyes are always on this place and my heart will forever be with this place. But what does the Bible say about the temple now? Where is the temple, church? Come on. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And he is saying that whenever you pray, my ears are attentive to what you are saying. My eyes will forever be on you, and my heart will always be with you. So if you humble yourself, and you pray, and you seek his face, and you turn from his wicked ways, he will hear from heaven. He will heal this land. Come on, how many of you know this land needs healing? Our nation needs healing. Our community needs healing. This church needs healing. My heart needs healing. How many of your hearts need healing in this place? Church, would you cry out with me? Just cry out with me this morning. And understand that God is hearing you. His ears are attentive to this place. His heart is with you. His eyes are on you. God, we are your people. Your chosen people. Not because we earned it. Not because we are in the right place at the right time. But Father, your faithfulness goes out before us. And it has called us. It has drawn us to you. And it's by faith that we are saved. Jesus, we look to you as our Savior. We look to you as the one who can save us from everything. Lord, I pray for the people in this place who have undetected sin. For the people in this place who have been going on for so long, it's become cultural, it's become part of the routine, it's become part of the schedule. And Father, I I pray right now that you would drop the scales from eyes right now in Jesus' name. Lord, that people would be convicted of things, of little things, Lord, that you're telling them to turn from. And they would devote themselves wholeheartedly to you, that they would forsake worthless idols to grab hold of something greater. God, we want to see you move in this place. Come on, if that's you, just cry out to God right now. Just lift up your voice. Say, Jesus, come on, just just, just tell him. Tell him what you need. Tell him, tell him with your own mouth. What is it that you want to confess? What is it that you want to say to him? Be honest. Be honest. Be honest. Be repentant. Be repentant. Offer thanksgiving to him and give him your life. Jesus, we worship you. I give you everything I have. God, that 2% that I've been holding back. Years ago, I gave you 98%, but there's been 2% that I've held back out of fear of what people would think, out of fear of, of what would happen to my life, out of fear of not knowing what would be next. But Father, you have the 2%. I give it to you. I give you everything. 
If you're in this place and you just made a new commitment to Jesus in your heart, would you just raise your hand to me? Come on, if you've been a believer for years, you just made a new commitment to the Lord. Just raise your hand. Thank you, Jesus. Father, I pray that you would you would solidify this moment. Lord, we build a temple right now, or we build, not a temple, we build an altar. God, we build an altar for you right now, a, a point of remembrance to look back years from now and say, I remember on February 19th when I re-gave God everything that I had. I, I gave him the 2% that I was holding back. God, I pray that the people who raised their hand, the people who made a new commitment would never be the same. In Jesus' name. May that hunger grow. May that fire continue. Can we sing I Surrender All one more time as we close our time together? And let's cry out to God and just worship him as we sing this. some of you need to be reminded of this verse the most quoted verse in the bible by the bible is this the lord is gracious and compassionate he's slow to anger and he's abounding in love if you walked in here thinking the lord was angry at you that he was disappointed with you you can leave knowing that he is abounding in love and faithfulness. That his eyes and his heart, they are with you. So, Father, thank you for your presence. Lord, we ask that you would continue this work all throughout this week. Continue to draw us closer to you. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen. Bless you, church. We'll see you next Sunday. Bless you, church. Praise you, Lord.